This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. John, a lot to talk about in the business. ESPN layoffs, Monday Night Football drama, and the Pat McAfee sweepstakes. And we have Rebecca Lobo as the big get. And it's March Madness. Screen set, Edwards. Wow, what handle, though. The drive. Oh, it goes! <laughs> Boom goes the dynamite! Oh, brother. Watch out. And we're back. I'm Andrew Marchand, sports media columnist for the New York Post. He's John Oran, the media reporter for the Sports Business Journal. John, we got the big get, Rebecca Lobo. At the end of the show, we're going to have Carp's Corner. Look at some ratings with Austin Carp of the Sports Business Journal. But let's get it started. Who's up and who's down? Who's up? Who's down? All right, Andrew, get us started. Who's your up? My who's up is Jamie Erdahl from CBS and Turner. She had the best weekend of any broadcaster on the tourney. A uh, couple of cuts I want to play right out of the bat. Uh, she had the FDU coach, Tobin Anderson, after they beat Purdue, number one Purdue, one of the biggest upsets, probably tied for the biggest upset in the history of the tournament. Uh, first off, she had to find Anderson in the scrum in the celebration. And then the second half of the interview, uh, this question was gold and Anderson delivered. You are a kid from Iowa. Your your dad was a coach. Yes. You coached at D3, D2, D1. How proud do you think your dad is of you tonight? Oh, man. Don't make me cry. <laughs> I wish he was here. I mean, I wish you could see what's going on here. I mean, most of your life, Division three, Division two, you're in front of 100 people, family and friends. We're in front of 20,000 people here in front of the whole world. Just beat Purdue. I mean, and all my stuff comes from him. My dad was a much better coach than I was, but I've got a better team than he had, so it makes a lot, it makes a lot easier. But no, I wish he was here, wish my mom was here. But we got a great family and friends, and I'm so proud of this team. And what a wonderful thing this is. I'm just, it's incredible. And that's how Erdahl started her weekend. She ended it with a funny moment uh, on True TV, which you'll notice in this clip. She had FAU's Janelle Davis. Are you a player that plays in a moment like this with something to prove about yourself? Yeah, a lot. I've been, I've been trying to prove this shit since day one. Oh. That's all right. That's what <laughs> happens to all of us. We're on True TV, man. I just, I've been trying to prove this since day one. I just put the work in. All right. Well, we apologize for the swearing, but Erdahl uh, did a good job of noticing that it's True TV. All right, John, who do you got? Who's up? All right. My who's up, Andrew? Christine Dorfler. This, by the way... The first time in Mando history that we've honored a CFO, Chief Financial Officer, as a who's up, and Dorfler deserves it. Uh, my, my colleague, Ben Fisher, he broke a story that she's leaving NBC to become the CFO of the NFL. 
where she's replacing Joe Seclair, who's been with the league for more than 30 years. The thing about uh, Dorfler, though, almost always when somebody leaves a, a company, people always downplay their importance. You know, she was okay, I guess. Not so with Dorfler. NBC years, they loved her. I had one text message saying that she was, quote, as good as they get. Had another text message saying she was, quote, on my Mount Rushmore of great executives and people. I'm sure the people that sent me those text messages, they wouldn't mind if I used their names. I, I didn't ask, and I don't want you to know who I'm texting, uh, Andrew, at NBC, so I'm not doing it. Anyway, uh, Christine Dorfler, my who's up for the week. All right, my who's down, Brad Nessler from CBS. Now, to be clear, I've always liked Nestler as a broadcaster. Uh, very good on football. Uh, I thought his career, he kind of got a raw deal a little bit at ESPN and ABC with how everything came out because he did the NBA, which wasn't really his forte. I uh, kind of missed out on maybe being the national championship game caller. Uh, but on the NCAA tournament, he's not bringing the juice. And I'm not saying he doesn't want to be there. It's just uh, for these games, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Like the hardest event for sportscasters, but also the best event because you're, there's a lot of upsets. You're introducing players to a lot of people who don't know about it. But a lot of times at these games, especially the Thursday, Friday, first and uh, first round games, there's not that many people in the crowd uh, sometimes. And you really have to bring that energy. And I felt like Nestler kind of lacked it a little bit. And I would want to see more of, of that. Uh, we'll get into the tournament a little bit later because there's a spot opening up with Jim Nance retiring next year and getting to that second round. Who's going to get that? We'll talk about that a little bit when we get to the NCAAs. Uh, but Brad Nestler uh, for the first weekend, he was my who's down. My who's down, Steve Rosenberg. For nearly three years, Rosenberg was president of Diamond Sports, a company that owns and operates at Bally Sports RSNs. And you want to talk about bad timing, Andrew. Can you think of a worse time to run a group of regional sports networks than the last three years? Rosenberg had to work through mounting debt, uh, you know, eight, more than $8 billion of debt at, at Diamond he saw his boss change from Sinclair to an independent board of directors that the creditors put in place to run the company. He worked through the lead up uh, to an inevitable bankruptcy. Uh, not even a week after Diamond actually filed for bankruptcy, he lost his job. Uh, Rosenberg, he was new to sports. He had a long career in media, having run uh, Universal's TV business um, a couple of decades ago. But this isn't how he wanted his stint to end. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that he wanted to help see Diamond through bankruptcy, and I'll be very curious to see where he winds up. All right, let's move to the topics. We'll have Rebecca Lobo, uh, the big get, in a little bit. And at the end of the show, we'll do some ratings uh, with Carp's Corner, with Sports Business Journal's Austin Carp, and then a call of the week at the end. Several months ago, when Bob Iger came back, he talked about there were going to be cuts coming across Disney, which would in include ESPN. Just uh, earlier this week, you had a story, Andrew, where you uh, put a, a few more uh, specifics around those cuts uh, that are coming. Tell us what you've uh, found out. I think the middle class is the ones that are probably going to get hit the hardest. So if you're a sports center anchor making 600000 or more uh, per year uh, and you're not Scott Van Pelt, you're not necessarily moving the needle. I think those are people that um, probably have some concern I also was told there's not going to be any sacred cows. They'll look at uh, from they're looking at everybody, people who lead each department uh, from the ESPN chairman. Jimmy Pitaro is defined as much efficiency uh, in their 
um, divisions. Uh, and so I don't think there's a number, at least at this point, that they have to hit or a number of people who are going to be laid off. Um, but it's not a great situation. You know, the Stephen A. Smiths, the Van Pelts, the Schefters, uh, the Woges, they're not going to be um, impacted by this. Uh, it's that middle class. And I do think there's a lot of management that they're looking at uh, in terms of executives and they're thinning it out. Uh, you know, what's changing about ESPN under Bob Iger and the way the new structure is that their financials are going to be uh, just laid out to the public in November. I think they're going to be very good. Um, and from what I understand, I think they might surprise people how good they are. Obviously, they're making less money than they once were, but still, I think they're making tons and tons of money, which makes this even more uh, disheartening uh, because, you know, the, I think ESPN is still making a lot of money. There, there are several areas to look at. First of all, like we don't know the timing of when this is coming out. We don't know how many people. Well, probably are... end of April, um, I would say. Yeah, it's it's within, yeah, within a month or two, I, I, I think. End of April sounds, uh, sounds right. We don't know how many people are going to get fired versus, you know, sometimes during these layoffs, it's, you know, if you have open positions you're just not going to fill them yeah uh, and uh, going through you had in your piece you you identified uh, chris fowler who is somebody whose contract is up uh he's looking to get a big a big raise off of his contract for me that's where i would uh, that's where i would be really worried if you have a contract that's coming up within the next you know a uh, month or two like that timing is particularly bad for you it is and i think they did this but i think as far as I can tell, I think they're going to be smarter about it, right? I don't think if I were them, I wouldn't just make decisions on, well, guys, contract happens to be up and we're cutting now. I think that's kind of stupid um, way to make the decision. They want to keep Fowler. He makes around $3 million a year. I think he might be looking to double that. I, I mean, he's not going to get there. You know, if you're Chris Fowler, uh, you know, we're talking about layoffs here, but if you're Chris Fowler and you see Joe Buck making 15 million to do Monday night and you're doing the national championship and the league game on Saturday, I can understand his thinking. Now, I think Joe Buck was in a unique circumstance. Uh, they had a unique problem that Buck solved. And I mean, they paid him a crazy number. Uh, you know, he made a lot of Fox, you know, nine, 10 million dollars. Uh, they went to 15. So, you know, Fowler doesn't have that leverage and they have other people. Uh, they have Reese Davis. They have Sean McDonough, uh, Bob Wischusen. Uh, They could look outside as well if they wanted to, uh, to replace Fowler. So it's not a great leverage point. Uh, I do think they want to keep him, um, but I don't think it's definite uh, what's going to happen there. And I, I also want to make one other quick point about this. I write every single day about the regional sports networks and the problems that they're having. Disney, uh, ESPN is within the same sort of media environment. But from everything that I've heard, these cuts, they're Disney-wide cuts, and they're coming after Disney spent so much money on their streaming service, on uh, Disney+, Plus, on uh, ESPN+, Plus, Hulu. We, we've talked a lot about how Wall Street wanted uh, companies like Disney to get as many subscribers as they can. And then in, in one quarter, they stopped and said, forget about the subscribers. We want profits. I think that uh, what, what we're about to see happen at ESPN is and, and all of Disney is a function of that more so than board cutting or rebundling or any kind of like inherent uh, uh, fissures at ESPN. I agree. And a lot of people will point to, you know, they signed Joe Buck and Troy Aikman for $33 million combined. That really has nothing to do with this. If they hadn't signed them, I think they'd still have layoffs. Um, this is a Disney uh, situation. 
Uh, now they've signed some other contracts that where sometimes I hear some numbers and I'm like, wait, why would you do that? There's no leverage. <laughs> you know, why are you giving certain people this amount of money? But yeah, but I think they're, they're going to try to, you know, a lot of places, you know, there's, you know, kind of a feeling there might be a recession on the horizon. Um, and then, you know, they, they kind of, this is a, I'm not saying an excuse, but they, they get a chance to sort of uh, slim down uh, when these quote opportunities happen, but it stinks for, for basically everyone involved. Let's uh, get into topic two. You mentioned Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, you know, on last week's pod, we talked about the switchover in the uh, Monday night football booth with a, a, a new pr- uh, producer, a new director coming in, Steve Ackles and Derek Mobley coming in, uh, Phil Dean and Jimmy Platt uh, heading out. Um, since that story broke, uh, there, there have been a lot of reports coming out that it, it was, um, if not engineered by by Troy Aikman, you know, he certainly made his uh, desire known that he wanted an uh, an upgrade in the uh, in the production truck. And what has really struck me about this, I, I do these types of stories all the time. The number of people who have reached out to me uh, via Twitter direct message or email who are real big fans of Jimmy Jimmy Platt in particular, Phil Dean as well, and and just kind of like that booth, they look at last year's Monday night football. And they say, we really improved the quality, you know, throughout, throughout the Monday night football, not just in the, in the booth. They just feel like they're getting screwed uh, on that. And, and, and they feel like it's, it's sort of been an unfair change uh, that they've had. So you're talking about Phil Dean, who's been at ESPN for more than three decades. Uh, Like I said to some ESPN people when I was reporting, you know, four years ago, when you guys hired Phil Dean and Jimmy Platt, you guys said that these were the greatest producer and director ever like what changed uh it's so uh not a real great answer i mean there's a feeling I, people love platt as director uh but there was a feeling that mobley could have had this four years ago but they didn't have the super bowl then and they did have the national championship uh, and he declined i think look phil dean was put in a very difficult position uh you bring in joe buck and troy aikman they're doing it their way it's not ideal to show up the day of games uh, Troy Aikman and Joe Buck didn't do that all the time, but they did do it sometimes. It makes it feel like, you know, they're the stars and everyone else is the help. The style that I understand the Phil Dean had is more of a laid back style, um, which can work a lot. And in theory, uh, should work with Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. Uh, but it was clear to the people in charge of ESPN that there was a disconnect between especially Aikman uh, and Dean, I mean, Aikman made it well known. Aikman's difficult. He's, uh, you know, we, we saw it when he was a cowboy, um, and at Fox at the end, it ended poorly. Uh, the relationship there was not good. Uh, and so that makes it a hard situation, uh, for Dean. Uh, you know, I, I do think, you know, Steph Drulli is the one she went on the record with awful announcing and saying that, uh, she's the one that made the decision, which, okay. I mean, I think you probably would want to consult with Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. So I'm not sure if I agree with that because they are the stars. You want to make sure they're happy. But I think that's a little bit of uh, PR uh, because they knew how Troy Aikman and Joe Buck felt that, you know, they wouldn't mind having a different producer. You know, Steve Ackles moves in there. Uh, You know, and, you know, the other thing that's kind of a layer in this is that layoffs are around the corner here. And, you know, there are people possibly trying to protect others um, because, uh, you know, everyone, as I, you know, wrote in the story the other day about layoffs is, is vulnerable. And so 
Ackles moves into that position. Now he's the head of Monday Night Football. He was uh, Phil Dean's boss. Uh, so that changes the dynamic there. And obviously uh, now Ackles has that stability. It's a complicated situation, but I don't think it's fair to just say like, well, first two things, they're allowed to make a change. I mean, I think there's like kind of um, with some of the quotes, the issue that especially people who are on the production and who spoke to awful announcing, you know, apparently, you know, not for attribution, it affects a lot of lives. You know, they're going to bring in their own people. So here are people who are about to do, they think, a Super Bowl in three years, and now they're not, and they're not sure where they stand, uh, and they're probably moving back to college football. Uh, and so you obviously are going to be disgruntled. And I, this is an issue when you don't, you know, there there just there wasn't that relationship uh, with the production people that you ideally want with the booth because they're showing up a little bit later on private jets as opposed to being there and building up a camaraderie. And here's one other aspect of it, Andrew, that, that I found to be particularly interesting is, is that producers and directors, they move as a team. And, and, and so you, very rarely do, do you see somebody swap out just one director for one director. Usually when this happens, it's happening like this. We're bringing in a whole different uh, sort of team. And the, I think the worry you just mentioned, the worry about the knock-on effect on down the line is is something that that you know I'm seeing again in the in the messages that I'm getting over uh, over Twitter and email. Topic three, Andrew uh, Pat McAfee, free agent again. What's going on here? Well, what a weird situation, right? He has he's in the midst of a four year, hundred and twenty million dollar deal with FanDuel. Uh, I broke the story last week after the podcast. Sorry about that. It was the Wednesday, I think, or maybe Thursday after the podcast. Uh, it's supposed to could have been for you know, last week's podcast. So he has a contract. He's in the middle of it, only in the second year, $30 million a year. FanDuel, their emblem, you know, was on, you know, omnipresent on his show every day. It's been removed. Uh, He said it's all love. Uh, But, you know, he's looking to leave. And he addressed it after my story came out and basically confirmed um, most everything. Uh, I would say if I were putting a bets on here, I would say Amazon is the favorite. Um, ESPN, despite layoffs, is talking with McAfee. Uh, they already have him for game day for a couple more years uh, under contract. And so, um, you know, I think he, I think if I were betting, I think it's going to happen. Like, I think he's going to move. Um, maybe he'll get a little less money. He wants to simplify his life. Um, you know, he's a daring guy. How daring is he? You know, that's the question uh, with, with McAfee, because uh, most people, if they're in the midst of a four-year, $120 million deal, would just do whatever they uh, needed to do. <laughs> yes, uh, but sir, McAfee's no, sir. Different. <laughs> He's different. Yeah, the one thing about uh, McAfee is uh, I, I've always said, if he had come to me for career advice at every stop, I would have given him the exact opposite bit of career advice. And you, you see where his career has taken off. Like he's made these gambles and and it has paid off really handsomely for him. Like, is he ready to go and just kind of be part of uh, ESPN's lineup or does he still have some something in him that still wants to get out there and and and, and build up what he's built? I mean, he he mentioned it and I wrote it. He, you know, he's having a baby with his wife, uh, daughters in a couple of months. I think he wants to simplify his life a little bit. I mean, he's going, you know, with the wrestling first and then game day. I mean, that's seven days a week. And the thing about being a sports talk show host, what a great job, right? But you have to pay attention all the time. 
you always are kind of on. You're always, you, you, know, you need to know what's going on, pop culture, sports, everything. And I know that people are like, ah, it's easy. That's not so easy because you, you have to know your stuff. Uh, even if you're McAfee and you're kind of shooting from the hip a little bit, you got to know what you're talking about. And that's a job. It's a little bit different than um, than if you're a fan just just watching. So uh, so that that's something uh, that's going to be very interesting to watch. All right, let's move to the NCAA tournament. Story you had, Greg Gumbel um, is going to remain at as the host uh, of CBS's pregame show, studio show um, for the NCAA tournament, but he's going to relinquish his job at um, as a play-by-player on the NFL, uh, which is significant. Gumbel, 76. Uh, he struggled last year as a play-by-player. It seemed like a move CBS needed to make uh, because there are just some mistakes that just can't be you know, you can't be getting quarterbacks mixed up on touchdown passes. Um, and so they make that move. Uh, what'd you think? I can see why that, that, that move was made. Uh, it, he, he got killed on, uh, on some of his calls, uh, last week, but you know, when, when I talk about Greg Gumbel, I just, he's had a long, quietly illustrious career. Historic. I think. Historic career. He's a, he was the first African-American, uh, to call play by play in a Super Bowl, And he, he did it twice. Um, he he was the 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 lead CBS announcer uh, on the NFL. Uh, he has uh, he's called the NFL for decades, and he's been like right right in the middle of things for a long time. This is really a time where, despite some of the uh, complaints, legitimate complaints that people had about him la- last NFL season, this is a time really I just just think I want to celebrate his career and say like, wow, hats off to great uh, Greg Gumbel for you know what was a really good career that uh, appears to be winding down right now. Yeah, I mean, it'll still be on the tourney, but yes. Um, you know, with these broadcasters, we see with Al Michaels, you know, into his late 70s, Vin Scully uh, in New York, we have John Sterling. I mean, these guys got, some of these guys go forever. Um, so we talk uh, about it all the time. They have the, like, it's the voice. It's a comforting voice. I, I call it the big game voice. Like, I, I like to hear Al Michaels' voice. I like, I know it's going to be a game that I, that I, I kind of want to see. The other big story coming out from the NCAA tournament, Andrew, is this is Jim Nance's final tournament you talked earlier in the pod about you know we, we know Ian Eagle is going to take over for Nance well who's going to take over for Ian Eagle that's that's going to add uh, that, that creates a hole now for the would it be number two broadcaster or at least a broadcaster that's going to be for the Sweet 16 and, and Elite Eight that's not there now yeah it's a big deal like if you're a CBS or Turner broadcaster to get to the second round right because you know, a lot of, um, you know, the broadcasters, there's four teams that go on and ha- and for the second weekend, right? And then there's the one team that, you know, right now it's Nance, Grand Hill, and Raftery. Next year it'll be Eagle, Raftery, and, and Grand Hill in that, you know, for the final four. So who moves up? Um, it's an interesting question because, you know, you have Ian Eagle with Spinarkle. They've been doing it longer than anybody, 20 plus years. Um, you know, does Spinarkle get a new partner and stay in that sweet 16 spot? Um, you know, Andrew Catalone, I think, has probably moved in as the favorite to to get a second, you know, round, uh, second weekend. Uh but he and Steve Lapis have been working together for a long time and sound good together. So does Lapis stay with Catalan? I think that's the question for CBS. I think Catalan, he helped himself uh, with the FDU. You know, there's obviously a function of luck in terms of the games you get, but uh, Catalan did do well. Uh, and so I, I would suspect he'll be the play-by-play guy. Uh, who's the analyst? Again, it's only one weekend. You know, it's only a couple of games, but it's a big deal if you're Spinarkle, if you're Lapis, to get to that second weekend. 
Let me ask you a quick question about Ian Eagle, who I, I love the way he calls NCAA tournament games. He he has fun with it. He's funny with that, with some of his calls. He does a, a lot of shout outs to pop culture references uh, that, that, that go viral on, uh, on Twitter. When he becomes number one and he's sitting in there with Bill Raftery and Grant Hill as part of this sort of like team, does he have to change that style at all? Does that become tempered at all, do you think? No, I don't think so. I think if you're Iron Eagle and you've done thousands and thousands of games, you know, he does the Nets uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, he does Turner NBA. Uh, he does CBS forever now. Uh, I think you do exactly what you've done. And I think the one thing, you know, Jimmy Trainer, our buddy at Sports Illustrated talks about it. I mean, he and Raftery uh, like are a classic team. And we, we've seen it on CBS somewhat, but they did the Nets for a long time. I mean, they're great friends. And that is going to be, I, I think it's going to be pretty good. Uh, and when he worked with Grant Hill, it was really good. I, I think the great thing for CBS is that they're going to move Ian Eagle into that spot and it's going to get better. I mean, I wrote this a few years ago. I mean, Ian Eagle is a better play-by-player than Jim Nance. Um, I mean, if you watch his games as compared to Nance's, just the energy is better. He's on top of it more. And he has these funny references. I mean, there's one the other day, Montana State, they mentioned Craig Kilborn. You know, you know, I love Craig Kilborn. They mentioned Craig Kilborn, <laughs> went to Montana State, and then Ian Eagle came out and said Jumanji, uh, which if you remember from, from Sports Center days was one of uh Kilborn's signature calls. Uh so that was uh so he and that one didn't even get that much play, but you know, he has all those calls. Uh, he obviously thinks about those, and then he kind of I think he does a good job though of not forcing them in there. He does them, you know, when it works. Yeah, I don't think he should change. If I, if, you know, if I were advising Ian Eagle, I would say don't change and do the, I would do the games the same way. Final topic before we get to our big get, Rebecca Lobo, Pac-12 rights. You uh, wrote a column that created a little bit of a stir this week, Andrew. I think anything you say about the Pac-12 creates a stir. The Pac-12 and Big 12, there's like this media rivalry uh, that we somehow have gotten in the middle of it. You know, I don't have any I, i'm not rooting for anybody here i'm just trying Wilner, to report by the way right wilner and kazano had me on their podcast to, uh, yeah, to, to talk rights yeah so a meeting of the uh, of the minds there i thought it went very well all right good so here's the thing well we're doing this podcast tuesday and so the pac-12 is having meetings on tuesday so things potentially could change uh, off of that but i think espn is not close with a deal with the pac-12 uh, Amazon's interested, but only at their number. And I don't, I'm not getting the feeling that something's imminent with them. Apple is someone, uh, we've mentioned, I wrote a story a couple weeks ago as a possibility, uh, it does sort of seem to fit into what they want to do. You know, they like to take their time. Uh, is it possible that they could have a secret deal and it's coming out soon? I, I guess that's possible. Uh, there's no indication. I'm not saying that. I think they take forever. They took forever with the NFL. So I don't think they're going to jump for the Pac-12. Um, and But I will say that if you talk about the money where they possibly could get it, I, I'd say Apple is the place that would have the, maybe be willing to pay the money. And, but it'd be, they, they definitely would want all in everything uh, on the Pac-12 would, would go to Apple. I'm not saying that's happening, uh, but if it's not any of those three, I'm not sure where they're going. Um, and so uh, it's a dicey situation for the Pac-12. Here's what's so uh, interesting about this is that this fall, you can turn on ESPN and Fox and you can watch the Pac-12 for the entire uh, uh, season. So there's, 
it, it feels like, why aren't they getting the deal done? There has to be a deal done. It feels like that there, there's a deadline that's, that's just happening right now to get it done. And there doesn't have to be. But I think that the, the university presidents and and the uh, actual conference itself, they, they, it's a self-imposed deadline to try to get this done and, and, and get rid of the narrative uh, for a while. And I'm not sure why, why they're trying to rush it. Well, I think as the Big 12 is knocking at the door, and I do think that I get it, you could say, well, you should be patient. The problem is if you're a university president, if you're too patient and somebody else isn't patient, you know, and, that, and that's unfortunately where it stands because if one Pac-12 team leaves, then what happens? You know, Arizona's, again, this isn't where my expertise is at all, but it does seem like the Arizona schools, Arizona and Arizona State are together. They're a link deal. They're going to go together if they leave. Um, if they stay, they'll stay together. Um, but if one team leaves, what does that do, right? And that, and what does it even do to your deal, right? If, you know, Utah left, I know their president said they're staying and whatever, everyone's, you know, they're kind of at least talking to, you know, a good game. Um, you know, that that's where, so I don't know if you can be so patient. It's a, it's a, unfortunately, it's a cutthroat business. That's totally true. On the other side of the coin, they, uh, Pac-12 has terribly bad luck at coming to market when we were just, we spent the first topic talking about ESPN layoffs and the, the belt tightening at ESPN. For Brett Yormark, that could be an all-time maneuver jumping the line. And, you know, th that has left the Pac-12 trying to scramble uh, and try to figure out what they're doing. And maybe they have something, you know, a master plan uh, that's going to work out, you know, and hopefully for them they do. Uh, it's just hard to fully see it so far. Yeah, that Brett uh, Yormark media deal is looking better and better and better as the weeks go on. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. John, the big get, Rebecca Lobo. She's a Hall of Famer. She was a star in the WNBA and at UConn where she won a national championship. But you know why she's perfect for this podcast? She loves sports media. Her husband is Steve Russian. Uh, and he's probably one of my favorite sports writers of all time. Uh, loved Road Swing, a book he wrote in the 40th anniversary uh, of for Sports Illustrated. He wrote the cover story. It's a classic. If you haven't read that, you should go in the archives there. So, Rebecca, you're one of us. We all love sports media. <laughs> well, and then now I'm going to tell Steve for the rest of the day, he has to call me the big get. So it works well for everybody. And you're, you're right, Road Swing, one of the great books of all time. Yeah, thank you. Well, Rebecca, first question. 
athletes are supposed to hate the media. How did this all work out? I'm so confused by this. Well, it sort of started that way, actually. Uh, I was injured. I had a knee injury. I was playing with the New York Liberty and uh, ACL tear. And so like the, the one exercise I could do every day when I was at rehab was riding a bike. And if you're riding a bike for an hour, it gets boring. So I was just reading stuff cover to cover. And one of the easiest things to read was Sports Illustrated because the, the ink didn't come off my hands like it did with the New York Times. So I'm reading it every week. And uh, and I, I'm reading this columnist uh, at the front of the magazine. Rick Riley's in the back. And then this other guy, Steve Russian, in the front. I'm like, oh, I like the way this guy writes. Until... I read something um, that he wrote making fun of the WNBA, just a total throwaway line. It was something like, um, much like Wilt Chamberlain, I too slept with 10,000 women the other night. I was at a Liberty game or 6,000 women or something like that. So I just ended up meeting him coincidentally um, when I was uh, a few weeks after he wrote that. And I said to him, wait a minute, aren't you the guy who wrote the thing making fun of the New York Liberty? He just like, you know how you guys are. You don't think somebody's going to uh, <laughs> confront you about something you've written. <laughs> And uh, he kind of just stammered a little bit. He's like, yeah. And I said, well, how many games have you been to? And he said, uh, none. And I said, well, yeah, because if you had come to one, you would know that if you were asleep, it was with 16,000 people, because that's how many we average at a Liberty game uh, in those days in Madison Square Garden. So anyway, that was the first time we've met. we met and uh, we're approaching just in a couple of weeks, our 20 year anniversary. So we can coexist. <laughs> nice, nice. Congratulations on 20 years. That's great. Um, all right. So now let's get into your media career. When did you first realize you wanted to have one and how did it happen? Uh, you know, it was one that probably my senior year in college, I was not a, a communications major. Um, there weren't anything but maybe a handful of basketball games, women's basketball games on on the air in those days. So it's not something you aspired to do. Like, oh, I want to call one of the three women's basketball games a year as my career. Um, but I, at my senior year at UConn, our, our team was getting a lot of attention and um, and there was a growing media presence about women's basketball. And that's when I started to think, you know, I could... I could love being a part of this. I knew I didn't want to be a coach that uh, at, at the college level. That was too much of a, a life-consuming profession. Um, but I didn't really want to get away, away from the game. And I, I was just fortunate. I had some opportunities arise um, right out of school. I, I did studio for ESPN for the tournament in uh, 97, 98, 99, I think. Um, I was not good. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, doing research in those days, you couldn't just Google something. You know, you were doing facts back and all this kind of crazy stuff just trying to get information on teams. Um, and then uh, after I retired, I got an opportunity. Uh, Pat Lowry at ESPN gave me the opportunity to do sideline reporting, starting with WNBA. And then, you know, ever since then, for the past 20 years, um, I've been kind of immersed in it. So I fell into it a little bit, um, which uh, I had no idea what I was doing at the beginning. But the learning process because of that was uh, was a good one. Now, Rebecca, a theme of this podcast over the last year and a half has been about sort of the rise of women's sports and really the rise of how networks treat women's sports. Have you felt that? I've certainly felt the rise of women's sports. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's more popular. You know, I, I see it just in youth basketball. I've got four kids, three of them daughters. So I've watched and, and seen as they've played, whether it's soccer, softball, basketball, whatever it is, how many more kids are playing, how many more kids are invested. We know um, that when we're covering WNBA and when we're covering women's college basketball, the level of play uh, has exploded from the time I was I was playing, you know, 25 years ago. Um, and, and certainly 
suddenly there's a lot more media outlets um, covering it. And and it's still a fight sometimes for us. Uh, you know, our, our ratings are on the rise. Like we, we want more. We, we're constantly wanting more, which is a good thing. And uh, and like, look, just look at ESPN, the number of ABC games this year in women's college basketball. We had a, a, a stretch of, I think, four or five weeks in November and December where we had a women's college game on ABC every week. That has not happened before. Our national championship game this year is on ABC instead of ESPN. That's a first time. So, so there are certainly um, big milestone steps that are being taken. Of course, we still, we still are, keep, we still keep fighting, and, and we still want more. Why is it so important to be on ABC? I, I, I know that the championship game, as you said, is going to be on ABC. Why is that such a big deal? Um, just because so many more eyeballs still in, in the media climate we're in now, it does matter to be on network TV and, and it's proven, uh, w- whether the, it's the college games we've called, or we have, uh, in the last couple of years had a lot of WNBA games on ABC. Oftentimes it doubles the rating. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it just, it's, I will be shocked if we don't have a significant, significant ratings increase this year with our national championship game, just because of the accessibility that um, ABC gives um, gives to the audience. When when you started at at ESPN, or even when you were playing, could you imagine? this game being on broadcast television? Well, it was interesting is in those days, um, the women's and men's tournaments were kind of coupled together. So the national championship was on, uh, was on CBS. So CBS covered like two games a year as part of their commitment with, um, or their contract with, with, with men's. Um, so I think maybe it was my, right after I graduated where ESPN got the full rights to cover everything, which was incredible because as nice as it was to have a championship game on broadcast TV, we played our semifinal games on Saturday and our championship game was on Sunday at noon. There was not a day in between. And it was just because that's the window they had available in those days. Now ESPN, we cover every game and it's not even regionalized coverage anymore. Every single tournament game, if you want to watch uh, uh, for the women, you can find on any of our linear networks. And that's that's huge. And so then the ABC championship game on top of what we've been building all year and all through the course of the last couple of weeks on the tournament. Uh, it's just a great place, you know, for the culmination of, of the women's season. Now, when you look at where the WNBA is going, um, if you were commissioner and, and you were in charge of everything, what what's the next step for the WNBA? Where, where do you go and, and how do you get to that next level that you want to go to? Well, what's interesting is that the play certainly is there. Um, there's only 12 teams. There's only there's 12 roster spots, but most teams only use 11 because of the salary cap situation. So there's been a lot of conversation within the WNBA about the next step being um, expansion. So th- that's number one, whether it's adding one or two teams. Um, but the, the the sport's definitely growing. Again, I mentioned that, you know, there's a, a bigger presence on ABC, ESPN, uh, and even, you know, Amazon Prime on, um, on a variety of, you know, going online to watch games the the WNBA app like there's there's a lot more places than there used to be to watch to follow your team and to watch uh the WNBA uh, you know the product speaks for itself speaks for itself the WNBA basketball is outstanding for those who are willing to 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 tune it in and give it a chance if they haven't before it is outstanding an outstanding level of play so it's just about getting more eyeballs and having access to it and the WNBA I think has actually done a really really good job of that now first and foremost what you do a good job is on your commentary but one thing that I've noticed is late in games when you're working with Ryan Rucco, you know, and a lot of analysts, and this is maybe something you learned over the years, you'll lay out and let him make his call 
Um, like, and that's kind of, you know, obviously most analysts are former athletes. Um, so who've been teammates, but that's being a good teammate. Where did that come from? Am I, am I correct? I hope, hopefully I am. I um, hope so. I, I, well, first of all, you're correct in that. Like Ryan Rucco is amazing. Um, I am so fortunate that I get to work year round with him. Um, because he does WNBA finals. He and I've worked the WNBA now for the last 10 years. This is his third year, I think on women's college basketball. I take incredible pride in my silence. Um, especially in late game, because that is his moment. Um, there are times, you know, after a, a, a WNBA game or a big college game, and, you know, they'll post um, some of the big plays on, on social media somewhere. And my goal is to not hear myself, because if it's a big moment, that's his moment. And he is exceptional at it. Um, I think I, I learned that over time. I was really fortunate early on. I mentioned how I, I started as a sideline reporter with WNBA and then college. I was really fortunate that my analyst was Doris Burke. And so I just learned so much from listening to Doris. Um, she is as good as it gets in terms of not only um, breaking down games, but doing it in the fewest amount of words possible. She gets in and gets out, and she is always spot on when it comes to knowing when to let the play-by-play -play go. And I, I think I've I've um, I learned that just from listening to her. And um, but but I do I take I take a lot of pride in that in that part of me is my what's your favorite thing about you, you what you do as a broadcaster my silence. <laughs> That's good. Do you know do you know Doris Burke's biggest career highlight? Um, I don't I don't know if I do. She was on she was the big get a couple weeks ago. <laughs> number one. Well, yes, I'm in yeah. company with Doris. Yes, this is the first time one, I can yeah. I can say I'm in company with Doris Burke. She has that resume. She says big get and then she says Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's, that's right. So that you can do that too, Rebecca, if you apply for jobs. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Rebecca, you can come on this podcast any week. I don't think I've ever heard Marshan say, was that correct? He usually, he usually just goes straight on. So well, well, Rebecca, you got to understand, usually I'm talking to John. <laughs> I don't have to say, is that correct? I mean, hey, as we said, I'm married to a sports writer. I know you guys are always correct. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And a little neurotic, right? That's another uh, sports writer. Well, uh, ESPN's Mike Soltis uh, dropped a stat on me. It said uh, the, the last time that UConn uh, failed to make the Sweet 16 was your sophomore year. Is that, that's correct, right? That's That sounds right, because they said it's been 28 years. Um, yeah, 1993. One of the issues with uh, the women's tournament has always been you can pretty much take UConn and, you know, the number one and two seeds, and they're always going to advance. But, boy, th this season – or this tournament, really, uh, two number one uh, seeds are out, losing on their home court, in fact. Uh, it, is that part of the rise of women's sports that we're seeing as well? Yeah, I think I certainly think that's part of the growth of the, of the game. Uh, we saw Indiana lose last night as a one seed. You mentioned on their home floor. We saw the same thing with Stanford losing on their home floor. The last time we had uh, two number one seeds lose before the Sweet 16 was back in 1998. But there's sort of an asterisk by that one because Stanford was a one seed who lost to a 16, but they had been decimated by injuries before they received their seeding. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a part of the growth uh, of the game. You know, it, it used to kind of 
that frustrate me. Um, this time of year was when people who didn't follow women's basketball would come out of the woodwork after the first or second round. Is UConn bad for women's basketball? Like that was a nice little narrative that they used to like to throw out there. Well, UConn was in a pretty tight game, at least through a half um, against Baylor last night. I think, uh, you know, whether it was the the, the Tennessee teams in the mid-90s, the UConn teams or, or the, the late uh like 2008 era or the UConn teams in the early 2000s or the Brianna Stewart four in a row, really great basketball helps elevate um, basketball. And I think we're seeing that. And, and it certainly is part uh, of the growth of the game. But yeah, to see those two number one seats go down in the women's tournament, it's not something we've grown accustomed to, but I think it's something that we are going to see more and more as, as the years keep going. Now with UConn, Gino Oriema, he's been there a fixture for decades and decades. Where do you foresee, how long do you think he coaches for? You know, that's a big question. I don't know. Um, he, 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 I think about a week ago, he came out and said he's definitely coaching next year. So that's a step. Uh, you know, this, this was a hard year for him. He lost his mom um, right before um, the holidays and uh, he was very close with her. So he took a little bit of time away from the team. It's a year where uh, he's had a variety of players have a variety of injuries. Um, you know, when the Big East tournament came, it was the first time they had their full 10 healthy bodies since back in November. Um, but he still seems to really enjoy it. I sat down with him for an interview a couple of weeks ago and um, he seems to be in a really good place and he really, really likes this team. I mean, anytime you talk to coaches, like, you know, you, sometimes as we're sitting there prepping for games, it's just like, you enjoying this group? Because uh, sometimes that could be a great indicator of how much longer they have. But, uh, you know, he's still doing it uh, better than most people <laughs> and his and his teams are great fun to watch and he's enjoying it so uh I, I have been I, I said when we called a game earlier this year against Tennessee and this was right after he had taken some time away because uh, uh you know dealing with with some of the grief um and I said you know I'm, I'm watching him and UConn with a slightly different lens like a different appreciation of you know how much longer do we get to watch this greatness that we have kind of been spoiled by over the last couple of decades but um you know, I, 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 he's he's already said he's definitely back next year. Well, how about you, Rebecca? Like, what else has interested you? Have you ever gotten close to getting into coaching? Not at the college level. So I've coached all my kids at the youth level um, from at their school. They have they start in basketball in second grade. So uh, I've coached basketball second grade through eighth grade. Then usually when they get to high school, you know, they're they're out of my hands. Although my son, who's a freshman in high school now, I, I am helping coach his AAU basketball team. Um, and that's enough for me. I love it. I, I love kind of that age. I love um, coaching kids, you know, when they score their first basket in third or fourth grade and all of a sudden all these girls are surrounding each other, jumping up and down and smiling. Like it's the pureness and the pure joy of it all. Um and uh, so so that certainly fills fills it enough for me. Uh, the, the life of a college coach or a WNBA coach. Oh, no, I, I don't want that. I, I like the broadcasting life. We sit down, we call a game. Whoever wins, whoever loses, doesn't matter. Let's go have a drink or dinner. Um, so uh, so I, I just, you know, I'm kind of in my perfect place in terms of my my basketball fix in my career. I've, I've never um, really asked to to do men's basketball. Um, I did a little stuff for the Brooklyn Nets this year, which I really enjoyed in studio. But um, for me to be able to be the the mom I want to be, for me to be able to be the wife that I want to be, um, being immersed just in women's college basketball in the WNBA has been a perfect fit for me. You're pretty immersed, though, the other day when your daughter Maeve and her team, they won the state championship in Connecticut, high school state championship. What's it like for you as a mom to watch 
as compared to when you're a player. Uh, what's that like? It's agonizing. It's absolutely agonizing. I am not good at it yet. Um, I just, it, my stomach, look, when I was a player, you get a little bit of nerves and you go out and game starts and you're fine. Or even when I'm, when I've coached at times, my kids, like, cause you have some modicum of control of that when you're watching your kids. And I think any parent who's ever watched their kid do compete at any level or even perform in a play or anything like my stomach is in knots. Um, I try to be silent, but, but that doesn't really work all that well for me, which drives my husband crazy. We've decided we're better off if we have somebody <laughs> sitting in between us at games instead of right next to one another. Um, but it's also like one of the great joys of life, you know, to, to have this, you know, you have an angst because you want your kid to have a good moment and you want them to, to, um, you know, reap the rewards of, uh, reap the benefits of, of all the work they put in. And, and she was able to do that. Her, her team was down, nine at halftime of her state championship game she came out and had a big quarter and uh and they went on to win and and it's just something you love to see and and i i didn't know if I, if it was a day i could leave you know our first two days at the ncaa tournament are long we are doing we were in studio from 9 a.m to 1 a.m we're doing all of these games i knew a couple of them were on abc which is a really big deal and now Pat Lowry, I mentioned her before. I called her as soon as my daughter's team won the semifinal game. And I mentioned to her, she said, you can't miss that. And um, I can't tell you what it's like. You know, th th those are the kind of moments for me with, with my bosses where I'm like, all right, we're good forever. Like you have my loyalty forever because you let me have a moment like that. That is so, uh, so incredibly important to me. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. And that's great managing. I, I know Red Allback used to say like when a player would, uh, you know, have a death in the family, he would tell the player to go take as long as he needed. Uh, and his, you know, thinking was in part is the right thing to do, but also when the player came back, they're going to work twice as hard. So, um, so I, that's, that's great to hear, uh, in terms of that leadership. Yeah, um, certainly. And sometimes like we lose sight of those things in sports, you know, we like people miss the birth of their child or, or, or the death in the family or whatever. I mean, come on. They're like, I would never have forgiven myself if I had missed that moment with my daughter this weekend. Who knows if she would have forgiven me or not? Maybe she would have preferred me not to be there. I don't know, but I never would have forgiven myself. And, um, and if you ask me next year at this time, which games I missed because I was watching hers, I would absolutely have no idea. A hundred percent. Well, Rebecca, this has been great. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we wish you luck and hopefully a really good rest of the tournament. And then right into uh, the WNBA. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I'm going to consider myself the biggest get. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Rebecca Lobo, a great big get uh, that, that we had there. I, I really enjoyed listening to just her passion as she's talking about the, the the rise and the growth of women's sports and really how she's been a part of it from, you know, almost from the beginning, I think. Yeah. And she has a great reputation and you could just tell also how she spoke um, about her teammates, about Gino Oriema, you know, there's just um, about her boss bosses. Uh, it just, there was a, I've noticed, you know, with athletes I've covered over the years, you know, the ones who get the most recognitions are the ones who kind of, um, spread the ball and pass the ball when it comes to them, instead of talking about themselves, they talk about others. And I think if you, uh, when you listen to, you know, what Rebecca just said, uh, you felt that, you know, and she talked about others, which makes it so it reflects back onto you. Uh, so that was a really fun interview. Andrew, a regular feature here on the pod, Carp's Corner. Do we have any music to go with this? 
No, I think I did it last time. Carp's Corner. <laughs> Austin Carp. I've described him as SBJ's ratings guru. Abe Madcore said, come up with another name other than guru. So we're going to say SBJ's ratings expert. Uh, Austin Carp. thank you for joining us. You're, uh, you're, you're joining us right in the midst of the NCAA tournament. We reported, you reported, that it was the biggest ever first round for the NCAA tournament in terms of viewership. Why is that? Incredibly strong star for the tournament. You had some really big numbers, especially on cable TV. That fairly Dickinson game against Purdue, the upset, the number 16 over number one, that was TNT's best first round game since it became a tournament partner leading into the 2011 season. It even outdrew a Kentucky game that went head to head with it on CBS. That's a big win. Kentucky is one of the biggest draws in college basketball, year in, year out, tournament, regular season. You know, you look at the most watched games, Kentucky's always on that list. So to see a fairly Dickinson game against Purdue outdraw Kentucky in the first round, it lifted that boat for Thursday and Friday. But on the weekend, the numbers kind of went down as you saw some of the upsets and some of the blue blood names and some of the more well-known names exit the tournament. So heading into the Sweet 16, the tournament is actually down just around 1% you know, as we get in there, and we're missing a lot of key names. We're going to be missing Duke. We're going to be missing Kentucky. We're going to be missing Kansas. So I don't think it's going to portend well for the numbers in the Sweet 16 unless you have some really close matchups. Um, the Saturday-Sunday numbers were just not as kind to CBS and the Turner Networks. You're going to be missing Maryland now as well. Uh, of course, John, yeah. Austin, Wait, hold uh, did, on. You can't act like he, he, he love how he tried to throw that in like, like a blue bloods, Maryland. <laughs> of oh, course yeah, they yeah. are. Len Mc, uh, Tom McMillan, Len Elmore. I mean, come on. We, we have a lot of big history. names coming out of there. Yeah. Did you foresee the big numbers coming uh, for, for the first round or did that, did that surprise you? No, the superlative that they had on Thursday and Friday, I, I did not see. Even with the uptick in the regular season for most networks, for CBS, for ESPN, I didn't see that they were have such a strong, you know, opening round there. And it just goes to show you that there is, it seems like there's more of an appetite for sports out there as more scripted and entertaining TV isn't on linear TV airwaves. You're seeing more people kind of pick up sports, and it was very evident during Thursday and Friday's telecasts. But like I said, when there was more competition on the weekend, whether it be from World Baseball Classic or whether it be from just trying to get outside, the numbers slid back down. Except, Austin, if you're Live Golf. Um, what is going on with Live Golf? Uh, we didn't even get ratings this week, I don't think. Uh, no, so I haven't even seen numbers. What is the situation with their new deal with the CW? Well, Andrew, we only really have an indicator from those first tournament numbers that we saw a couple of weeks ago. This past weekend, they were in Tucson. You had competition from NCAA. You had competition from PGA Tour, which actually extended some of its hours around the Valspar Championship on NBC. That tournament did see an uptick. But... I don't really know if we're even going to see some of these Nielsen numbers that the CW might have. They might just keep it internal like a lot of networks do, like an SEC network, like CBS Sports Network. We may never see them. What I think that they want to put out in the market, what they want to show advertisers, prospective advertisers, are these iSpot numbers that they put out after the first tournament. Those are going to come out maybe on Friday, later, each time that they have an event. And I think those numbers, where they're able to measure some of the affiliates in markets where they may not get a measured Nielsen number tells a better story for them, you know. But whether we whether you can believe those numbers, it's a combination of internal numbers. It's a combination of iSpot. It's it's this hodgepodge number that they're kind of putting together, and I don't know 
if many in the industry are going to trust them at first. Think about this, and we've gotten into this. You know, we just talked about the Pac-12. It's like these, you know, people think we're on like somebody's side, this side or the other. We're only on the truth side. That's why we have you, yeah. Austin, to give us the truth about these ratings and what is going on. They're not going to be anywhere near the PGA Tour. I mean, Saturday, Sunday, they're not going to be anywhere near what a Thursday, Friday PGA Tour first or second round will get on Golf Channel. I think they're going to have a really tough time approaching even those sorts of numbers. So live defenders are going to say, hey, you're not you're not counting our streaming. You're not the, you're, you're dismissing the internal numbers that, that that we're getting. And you're saying, yeah, we dismiss internal numbers that we get from the networks. It's guess what? Media networks, sometimes they, they try to they don't maybe if they don't outright lie, they spin the truth, I guess. I don't mind spin, but as long as you're getting that from the centralized source that everyone's kind of using, the same currency that everyone's using, which for 50, 60, 75 years has been Nielsen. Okay, you start mixing in internal numbers and another provider. It's like, which numbers are the truth? I want to see everyone kind of use the same measuring stick out there in the media landscape. All right, how about this, John, for the future? Corpse Corner. Corpse Corner. Spinning the truth. Does that work? Austin, thank you. Works for Until me. next time. Thanks, gentlemen. You know, one of the changes we've made, Andrew, on this pod is we don't do call of the week every week. We usually try to save them when it's something big and something good. We're going to do another call of the week. Call of the week. All right, John, for call of the week, Fox's Joe Davis uh, on Japan versus Mexico. The first thing that really stands out about this call when you listen to it is how he describes how the balls hit, which is kind of somewhat awkward, not the way you hear it, but it actually ended up being the exact right term. Uh, Davis was over it. And then the excitement of it, uh, Japan versus Mexico, long fly ball to left. Quarterfinal performance where he knocked in five. Backspins a fly ball to left that sends a Rosarena to the track, to the wall. That one is... I wish people like go and watch that video because when Rosarina catches that ball and he and he flexes afterward, I mean that's every. I love watching the World Baseball Classic. I'm I, I, I'm a baseball fan and I just think it's it's, it's a fun watch and uh, plays like that uh, demonstrate exactly why I think it's it's, it's a, such a great TV product. Hundred percent, yeah. It's that's what you just said. I think it's very interesting. The next time around, four years from now, how this is becoming a really good. Uh, TV product and can they make it even better? I mean, I know there's some issues about moving it, but I honestly think if you could figure out a way to do the group stage during spring training and then have either the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals uh, during the All Star break, uh, if that could work, I think it could really even make it even more magical and bigger uh, because you'd be able to. I think players would care, and I think uh, some teams and MLB might want to sacrifice a little bit to get the best players. In those moments, uh, winner take all. I think there's value, TV value, long term uh, in in making this even bigger. But it's already uh, it's created excitement. Uh, and this is you know people always like to say, well, this is conceived. Like when they made the World Cup in soccer for the first time, when he, it wasn't conceived, like it wasn't just like thought up of like this is a good idea. This is how things work. I mean, they they have to start someplace. Some people are like, oh, it's only for money. Yeah, yeah it's for money. But like. It, it, it has to start someplace and this is how the growth happens uh, and it's good to see and it's it's fun to watch. Yeah, I chose my words carefully. It's a it's a great TV product. It's a there are packed stadiums 
with engaged uh, fans that are cheering and, and having fun. It's like, I love everything about it. All right, that's going to do it for us. We want to thank Rebecca Lobo uh, for joining us, the big get. Uh, Corpse Corner. Austin Corpse Corner. Spinning the truth. Uh, does that work? I'm not sure. We'll have to think about the brainstorm with that. Uh, <laughs> if that's right, spinning the truth. Or I don't know. Anyways, Chris Mason, he's the one who does all the jobs that are bored. He, he's, his son, Jesse Mason, he's going to be the star of his uh around his friends as he is celebrating his seventh birthday. So a shout out to Jesse. Thank you. All right. Happy Jesse. Birthday, Happy Jesse. birthday, Jesse. And in Jesse's honor for his birthday, he would like you to give us five stars, uh, write a nice comment <laughs> and uh, follow the pod. That's what all Jesse wants for his birthday. You have to uh, stay to the end to get it. Marshan's dad jokes. I love it. That's great. Happy birthday, Jesse. Thank you for listening, everybody. Everybody.